Good evening, doctor. How are you tonight? If you'd like to unmute your mic, it's on the lower right-hand side of your screen. Okay. I, I, so, can you hear me now? Yes, I can hear you now. Okay, good. So, I, you must be uh, Katerina? Um, I'm Victoria. Oh, you're Victoria. Yes, okay. it's it's nice to meet you. You are Steve. Is that um, what I'll call you, Steve? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> or or Doctor, um, do I pronounce that she who? Yeah, that's that's pretty accurate. Yes, she. Oh. Yes. She. Okay, thank you. Well, you have started the room early. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, which is I just want to make sure that it, I know how to make this work. I mean, how to join this. I can come back later if uh, um, that would be better. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, now that the room is started, we don't want to close the room, but if you could please tap, you, if I'll tell you what we can do. Um, if you can tap on my profile picture, yeah. and, and you'll see some commands open up a little drop down, it will say make a moderator. And if you yes. could select that and make me a moderator, please. Okay. Uh, make a, yes, I'm sure. Okay, okay. perfect. And now um, I can keep the room open. And if you'd like to just relax and then come back at, you know, at six or five of six or something like that. Um, then that's fine, and I'll and I'll just keep the. We don't want to close the room because it will take it off of the schedule. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, we want our friends to come here, so that's fantastic. You've started the room, and um, I'm happy to see you. I'm one of the the Science Society team, and Katarina will be here um, closer to six. And so, yeah, if if um, Dr. Shi, if you would like to just relax and come back, that's fine. Okay, or, yeah. I'll come back. Uh, yeah, I'll come back in about uh, fifteen minutes. That sounds great. You you could yeah. also just if you want to either leave or you can mute your mic and okay. um, you know just hang out. Either way, I'll I'll be here watching the room and you can go and relax and enjoy your evening and then I look forward to seeing you back again. Okay, I'll do that. I'll mute my Mac and I'll be back in about fifteen minutes. We'll All right. Fantastic. Right. See you then. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Victoria. Mm -hmm. So, Michael, I see that you're here. We're going to start the room at six. Thank you for being here and you're welcome to wait or, um, you know, hang out. Either one, but we'll be starting at six.
Hey, Sissy Rahim, how are you doing? Hey. <laughs> We're just kind of hanging out. Um, Dr. I think we should actually close it and start it over. No, 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 no. We're not going to close it because that takes it off of the schedule. So I'm just going to hang out. And, um, and Dr. She is just relaxing until six. So yeah, you can come back if you want, but we're definitely not going to close it. Oh, the replays are going to just have blank until for 20 minutes. Right. But if you close a room, then it's off of the schedule. We could just reschedule it. I think I'm not, if, if Katarina wants me to do that, I will, but up until, um, yeah, I, I can, I'm trying to contact her. I won't do anything without her saying to go ahead and do it, but here, I'll make you a mod and then, um, yeah. And then we'll, I'll just, otherwise I'll see you at six. Okay. Thank All you. Right. All right. Bye.
Hi everyone, how are you? Hello Katarina, how's your day? Good, good, how is yours? Good, going well, just getting dinner going. Do you want me uh, to make moderator really quick? Then I um, I, oh, the oh sorry. Yeah, sorry, I had my hands full. Oh, don't worry. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Boing. Perfect, thank you.
Welcome friends. We'll be getting the room started in uh, just a few minutes. Thanks for being here. Hi everyone, how are you today? We'll start in three minutes. Hi Steve, how are you? Can you hear us well? <clears throat> yes, I can hear you. I'm Perfect, back. how are you? <clears throat> how are you? Thank you for coming and making the Clubhouse account. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk to your people. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. We'll start in around three minutes, if that's okay with you. We'll... It's fine with me. Perfect. How's your day going? Did you have a good day? It's, yeah, it's reasonable. <laughs> that's already good, no? Lately, yeah. a reasonable day is a good day. Yeah, I just, uh, well, the good thing is that the weather here well, the, the temperature is not as high as yesterday. Yesterday was like a 95. Today, uh -huh. yeah, today's high was, uh, I think it's 91 or 80, 80 or 89, something like that. So it's a few degrees cooler. That That is good. Yeah, that is yeah. good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, in New York, it hasn't been... It has been mostly moderate. Today was not too warm. We have a few hot days, but not, not like not very hot. outrageous. Not very hot. <laughs> okay. No, that's good. that's good. Yeah, you are in the west, right? West coast, along west coast somewhere. Uh, no, I'm in New York City. Oh, you are Katerina, right? Mm -hmm, yeah, yeah, Victoria. Uh -oh. She's on the west coast. Yes. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm on the like... west coast. Victoria, yeah. yeah, you are in North New York City. I was in New York City was early this month. Yeah. Oh, how did you enjoy that? New York is it's amazing. Pretty good. Yes, it's well. I was there a few times, but this time was I think it was pretty, pretty interesting place. Uh, the weather was good, not hot. No rain. It was pretty <clears throat> reasonable. And uh, so we, I stayed there for about a week. And uh, <clears throat> it was was good experience. Yeah. You can eat anything there, <laughs> and everything. Yes, yes, you can <laughs> eat everything like different kinds of restaurants. But put well, the specialties. What is what I was before I, before I went there, people say, oh, you should go eat some uh, special pizzas and a special, what is that, uh, bagels. But I, I, I don't think I, yeah, I, I ate some pizzas, but not bagels. Oh, dear. You're going to have to go back and make sure you let me know. <laughs> yeah, I will, I will go, direct you. Uh, go next time. I will let you know, see some good places to go to to visit yeah there's also good really good uh italian gelato places here and yeah yeah that's true yeah we visit, yeah there's a few very good italian restaurants there that's the problem that's my problem there's too much food to try all the time yeah. every corner you pass there's like something else to eat yeah, yeah. it's horrible so you <laughs> yeah, you're constantly you're constantly thinking something something else. We're recommended to try something different. Things like that. Exactly. That's exactly the problem. Did you yeah. say corn or did I just think you said corn? Uh, every corner there's something else. Oh corner. Okay. <laughs> because yeah. the last time I was there then I discovered um this corn on the cob. It was it was Peruvian and it had the, oh, the yeah, really good cheese and chili on it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh my God. That's so good. 
and then yeah, the food corner. trucks and every oh. like there's so much food all the time that's delicious. oh the little oh my gosh yeah Gosh. with those little cookies there was something in chinatown that was from a cart and it had a kind of a cast iron skillet that was making little tiny um cookies that were like little kind of crispy pancakes and then you would they would cook them right there while you waited and then put them in a little bag i mean like 20 of them speaking of food trucks well you know, Victoria, now I know that you're originally from Portugal because all we do is talk about food. That's like when we're right. eating, we're talking about what to eat next. <laughs> what to eat next. <laughs> and we know next time that Steve will have bagels. So so it's so, good. So we can start the, the only, That's the only citizen test there is. They okay, good. Off, you well, talk about food you, <laughs> you know that I am <laughs> so now I've passed the real test. Yeah, <laughs> so good. Okay, uh, I think we can start. So, uh, welcome everyone to the Science Society, and of course, a special welcome um, uh, to you, Steve. Thank you so much for coming and uh, making the Clubhouse account and. Yeah, to talk to, you know, offer your time uh, to talk with us here today. Before we start, I'll um, introduce you to our audience. Um, so um, they get to know you a little bit better. Um, <clears throat> um, Dr. Steve Hu did his PhD at Colorado State University um, and he's a professor at the Earth and Atmospheric Sciences um, at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And um, he um, is an atmospheric scientist uh, with a joint appointment in the School of Natural Resources and, yeah, the Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences. Um, he received his um, bachelor degree um, in meteorology um, from the Lanzhou University in China and his master's degree also. And um, he, over the years, has researched <clears throat> um, problems in wide range of subjects uh, from the tropics to the polar region. And he developed the theory of flow frequency oscillations and radiative convective systems such as the tropical atmosphere and suggested it as a driving mechanism of the Madden-Julian oscillation. This theory has been tested and remains a cornerstone um, theory. And um, he also um, disclosed the physical processes connecting the Arctic oscillations with the circulation and precipitation anomalies in mid-latitude North America. And in his recent years, his research has focused um, um, of, about um, learning about uh, mechanisms for precipitation variations in the central US uh, from <clears throat> intra-seasonal and multi-decal timescales. And um, yeah, so his research has been mostly focused around climate um, and um, it has been summarized in around um, 90 refereed journal publications 
and um, he was invited to give presentations in many different venues and um, he also enjoys interacting with agricultural producers in person and working with them and understanding where to find um, relevant information about the weather and climate and um, he also enjoys teaching uh, numerous classes um, and um, yeah it's um, we are very honored to have you here and um, usually Victoria asks a couple of general questions if that's okay before you um, you know before uh, we give the stage to you to to talk about your research. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Katerina. All right. Thank you, Katerina. That was an exciting list of accomplishments. And it was um, so now, excuse me, somebody was um, coming. <laughs> Pardon me. Okay. Welcome. Um, in order to carry us into your talk tonight, it would be really nice to be able to ask you a few questions to learn a bit more about you and what has guided you into your research. So my question for you is, if you can reflect on your life and think of what might have been the first time that you noticed that you felt an affinity towards science. And so this could be some time in class or with a relative or maybe in your childhood during play, but that is my question to you, is when you felt that uh, connection to science. Thank you. Okay, that's an interesting question. See, I started this uh, science, uh, or interest in science, pretty late in my life, because uh, in high school, in the middle school, high school, I was in, uh, in China, and that at that time it was a it was a chaotic uh, situation, and then uh, schools were either closed or it's just a, a just a, a um, place for students to go there to play. It's not not much real study going on there. Then uh, after that uh, chaotic period, then the the situation changed. And the government decided to reopen universities. Uh, before that time, the university was only for some selected few, uh, from you know, pet, from uh, people working in, the, in agriculture, in industrial factory, in some other government agencies. <clears throat> so then, after that uh, period, the government realized that uh, uh, some educations must be continued in order to have the country to develop. Um, so then they started this uh, national exam to find qualified candidates to go to, those, go to those universities. So I was fortunate at the time to be in that age group to go to, to, to take the test and see if I, I can have the opportunity to uh, go to a university there. So then that's, that's, that's where I started because if I didn't, or if I didn't take the test to try that, then I would have, uh, um, I would must uh, go, have gone to the countryside to be a, to be a farmer 
to work with farm farmers, and uh, that would be <laughs> the rest of my life, I guess. So then, the way for that matter, for to change to keep myself in the city or in a in a in a life that I would prefer to take, I <clears throat> took that test, and I was fortunate that to uh, to pass the the accept, accepted grade. So I was admitted to a university, Lanzhou University. From there, I started uh, have some <clears throat> exposures to science. So in in early years in the university, I started taking well, of course, taking classes. Then there, I started seeing those uh, some applications of math and physics in solving real life problems. So starting from there, I I got into Scientific pursuit, and uh, that's the start. That's the start point of my my professional career, I guess. Thank you, Doctor Shi. This is it's so fascinating to hear that because I have I I have read of some of this history, and I also remember buying some books for my children that when they were little um, from China, and and they did. Um, praise farmers um, over other occupations, and and it was an interesting um, interesting situation to notice. And now I understand more of of what the climate was and why that why it, it felt somewhat like somewhat like propaganda. I don't want to say that with disrespect, um, but it was it was curious to me. And <laughs> who would have thought that this would have um, you know been revealed in your answer. So thank you so much for sharing this history. And and now from this point um, at which you were in the university, and congratulations on, on passing you. your exams and being admitted to uni. Um, can you take us along your path that brings you up to the current research that you are in today? Maybe a few of the major steps along the way. And thank you. Yeah, then after four years of university there, I, well, I was facing the facing the uh, another option or choice of, for my life. Uh, one would be stay at the university, be a teacher, or uh, the other well, the op other option would be taking a taking another test to go to graduate school. And I didn't like teaching at the time. I felt like uh, teaching is a boring profession so I went to take a take an exam to go to graduate school then from there I actually I was lucky I guess uh, to uh, pass a pass a great level when one can be admitted to a foreign university that was the early year when the when China was open was opening its doors so-called to the to the outside world, China Chinese government were was trying to uh, um, send some people to actually before that point before I came out to uh, to this country to U.S. in 1984, there were a few uh, groups of people sent outside to study here uh, in some U.S. China joint uh, education programs. Um, so I. I from from that process, well, going through that process, I I came here to the U.S. and uh, and uh, we were, I mean, I was 
with another person. So we were sent to uh, Colorado State University, and I was sent there, and he was sent to University of Washington. So start doing the uh, start working on this uh, advanced degrees, the master's degrees, master's degree, and then PhD degree. Then after that, uh, yeah, it's a long story, but eventually I wound up to be here at uh, University of Nebraska Lincoln, and mostly as a job requirement, uh, I started working on climate problems because I was trained as a as a dynamic dynamist, as atmospheric dynamics. Um, but then here, my job has been to help farmers, help local growers to uh, use, understand and use climate information, weather information to improve their operations. So from there, then with that responsibility, I have to, well, I've been working on understanding climate and the weather related problems and also, as as uh, Katarina mentioned earlier, I have uh, <clears throat> some. I have been working with farmers, ranchers, and other producers in the region to uh, trying to try to build this capability among producers, specifically how they can access or find the right information and use that information in their correctly in their. Uh, operation you know in the setting of their operation their, their geography their uh, landscape their pro production procedure all those things and how how they can benefit from <clears throat> using the information need to improve their lives so that's that's where I that's the road I, I got I, I took to get this point so over the years in the past like past 20 years or so my focus has been as mentioned by Katarina on regional climate, regional precipitation, specifically how the precipitation varies at different time scales and how um, accurate the predictions has been changing or improved. So we can use that uh, to persuade farmers, users to use that information <clears throat> in their um, food production or uh, management practices those things. So this particular this particular subject of Central Asia uh, climate is a is a, is was well, is originally from a collaboration with some Chinese uh, scientists several years be back before the pandemic. Um, so I had some postdocs uh, working with me on under, in understanding some. Uh, um, Xinjiang's and Western China's climate variation, climate change, and also the extent to Central Asia. Um, so I, uh, after those, after finishing with those postdocs, I still have this uh, sort of interest or have these problems in my mind. So recently I have a, a student, my co-author with this, in this uh, article, so he uh, he didn't have anything to do at one point, so I said, "Okay, let's do let's work on this problem, work on this Central Asia climate change in the recent uh, recent uh, decades and 50, 50 years, actually about six, 60 years." The reason for that is because there are so many 
different theories about uh, climate change in Central Asia. A lot of papers are, are conflicting in, in the information about uh, the precipitation increasing, some precipitation decreasing, and uh, it's very confusing. So I thought, let's uh, do some study and see uh, what is actually going on. So let's uh, make, uh, make it clear to the community that uh, um, Central Asia climate has been changing in which way. So that so this work is a is a is a product from that uh, as you can, we can call it a collaboration with this uh, Chinese uh, student. Um, so we start with this uh, <clears throat> with this uh, new method that uh, I I believe is a is a new approach to this kind of problems uh, because people have been well researchers have used have used the uh, temperature precipitation as individual elements of uh, weather or climate and on trying to study how they how they very individually in the past whatever many years <clears throat> that is a I believe that is an insufficient way or is can be a misleading way to study climate using those elements individual or separately so I so we started with this uh, sort of climate type using climate type Type, climate type is a is a combination of uh, temperature and climate, temperature and precipitation. I'm sorry. So, see, we you, you live in West Coast, then the temperature there varies within certain range, and precipitation varies within certain range. Like you live in uh, California, and that's that climate calls Mediterranean climate, and it, which is similar to the climate in the Mediterranean Sea. And Italy, or there's countries around that uh, uh, that water body, it has specific range of temperature variation, the seasonality, and also precipitation month. It doesn't rain during the summer summer months. The rain comes during the winter season. So, so it's not just temperature variation or precipitation variation. It's, it's a combination of these two elements. They have to vary in specific ways to define a climate in a region. So we. That's where I think that's a new method. The other new aspect of this research is that we use the climate type. Use climate type is, is good in, in the sense that we use type, climate type, not some averaging of uh, temperature or precipitation, which have been the major method seems in almost all, most of the, most of the production, most of the uh, publications or products from some uh, programs or projects. The average temperature over some regions, areas, to give you this uh, average value, and then show this average value has been increasing or decreasing in certain period of time. Those are misleading in the sense that um, averaging actually removes the regional or the local, the sort of local um, features of variation of, of those elements, and those local features of those elements are particularly important for their areas. So when you average them, the average, average, as the averaging method erases all those uh, sort of regional nuances, then you don't have, you get this average value, which means really nothing uh, for any, because this value, mean value can maybe too high for this area and maybe too low for the other area. So you get a number, you, you can publish a paper, but it doesn't really mean anything to people in particular areas. So we, we did not want to use that to, that sort of traditional or this those popular methods, we use this climate type type saying okay at this grid point in this result at this uh, 
or use the, based on the data resolution, the data we used is a ERA5 uh, reanalysis data, which has a resolution of 25 kilometers uh, square. So within this 25 square kilometer, I mean, 25 by 25 square kilometer area, the, the temperature and precipitation vary in this particular way and it defines the climate within this 25 by 25 square kilometer area. So that will be more useful, more specific, well, at least bring specific information to people living in that box. So then that's the, that's, I think those are the particularly interesting, I think worthwhile points to, to make uh, uh, to this, to this in my presentation before, I mean, before I get into any, any results, if uh, those results are of any interest to, to people in this uh, audience, among the audience. Dr. Shi, that was amazing context. That was above and beyond what I think we had expected, but this context really helps us to incorporate what we hear in your decision, excuse me, in your discussion, because um, the ideas of climate type um, and the fact that you're interweaving data and, and recognizing that, um, you know, what, what the drawback, what the error can be involved in, in the idea of averaging, it's, it's huge. It's, it's really important to listen to what you're about to say through that lens, understanding that what you were saying about paying attention to regional nuances. And, um, you know, saying when you said that averaging removes the local features and the elements and how important they are. So, um, yeah, I say this for everyone. We, we really appreciate that you've that you've taken the time to give us that context. And so at this time, you're welcome to move into the body of your discussion. And if you would like to have a Q&A following your discussion, that's up to you. Or if you would prefer to have the Q&A driving your discussion and have that um, in concurrently, then that can also be your choice. And, um, and we will take care of moderating the room and bringing people up to ask you questions. So um, with that, the mic is yours. Okay, thank you. Yes, I, will, I think I will take about 10 minutes to briefly introduce what uh, we found from using those methods uh, then I will open the floor for any uh, uh, questions because <clears throat> I think uh, everybody has his or her interest in, in or focus in their research. So then, uh, if, if I just spend all time, take all time to talk about uh, my work, it won't be useful, won't be beneficial to the audience. So I'm, I, I think I will just briefly go over what I <clears throat> what we found and then uh, open the floor for everybody to ask questions and if I can be of any help, that'd be great. Well, yeah, that said, then I'll, I'll just go over the uh, uh, major results uh, from from this work. This is a simple work, but I think the, the, the significance is pretty, uh, they're pretty much pretty, pretty high. I mean, and the, I think that the, the work is, uh, is interesting in the sense that it's directly affecting um, people living in that area, Central Asia. And I got, uh, uh, I got, I was interviewed by, um, what is, uh, Kyrgyzstan's TV, national TV reporters about uh, why we studied the Central Asia region because very few research has been paying attention to that uh, remote area 
unpopular area. Uh, so then, <clears throat> and also what is the, what maybe the consequence or maybe the, uh, the yeah, consequences or um, impact or what the results may have uh, for decision makers in that region. But anyway, what we found from this, uh, from using the ERA-5 reanalysis data, data, which has, as I said, a resol spatial resolution, spatial resolution of 25 kilometer by 25 kilometer. So the region is divided into boxes or square areas with that uh, resolution, with that uh, size. So then we use the uh, data from 1960 through 2020 and uh, Analyze the combined the climate types. What's the type? How is it? What's the, what was the type? Uh, dominant type in the box area, box area in, in a specific area. Then how that type may have been change may have been changing over those, say from sixty to now is sixty years. And then we found that uh, well, in the in, the change ha, has been pretty dramatic, and the the uh, most uh, significant change took place during 1980s so that's like a that, those 10 years was like a was like a, a transition period uh, before that the climate was uh, was dominant climate at places uh, was in one was in one type pretty much but over those say 60 to uh, late 70s and early early 80 then the the, uh, the climate was actually Weather was becoming slightly wetter, pretty stable, and warming is not uh, warming is not evident. So it's a pretty mild, stable climate condition for those twenty years. And during the eighties, some changes happened pretty dramatically. So after that ten years, then we had we are in we got in we got into a, this more recent. See thirty thirty year period from ninety from from nineteen nineties through two thousand twenty. These thirty years have been pretty uh, have been observed have been observing pretty dramatic change in, in that area. So one the first thing we we noticed uh, is that the the desert climate the area with this particular combination of temperature and precipitation that define the that defines the climate of desert. It's not just temperature too high. It's not just precipitation too low. It's a particular combination of these two elements defines the climate, defines the desert climate. Meaning that uh, if this combination or this weather condition persists there, then the environment will be evolving into the desert. That's called desert climate. It's not just because oh no precipitation. Of course, no precipitation will evolve eventually in, get, get, make a place into a desert. Um, but that's extreme. So in our case, we found okay. Originally, the distribution of the climate in that region is a, that is a semi-arid and semi-arid region. There are several major uh, deserts, deserts there, large area desert. We found then, then after 1990, and the, the well, and the uh, and and yeah, the following 30 years, it, we have seen this uh, in, seen this trend of the uh, more boxes, more areas. Where the more areas uh, where the climate uh, is was has been switching towards this climate uh, that is that is 
so it's defined by the temperature and precipitation for desert. So that's the that's an indication that the desert climate in that area or that region um, has been expanding, and the primary direction is northward moving. So the, the those big desert areas um, in recent thirty years have been expanding their coverage as a result of the climate. So the climate, especially around the northern edge of those major deserts, um, are changing the way that they are they are sort of they are grinding the region into a desert. So that's the that's what we call northward expansion of the desert climate in that area. So that's the that is a that is a major finding. The finding that is not just one area. It's it has a domino effect in the whole region because then you you have this uh, northern northern say fringe of the uh, the desert big desert area uh, trending to become desert. Then the that area was uh, say like a temperate or dry temperate climate. Not not desert, so that area is also sort of north expanding northward. North of that climate zone was more more um, more towards the uh, more wet. This weather is a more of a temperate climate. So that temperate climate now in the recent years, well through the change, has been losing its sort of coverage. It's becoming the the, the temperate climate has become smaller, shrinking, and then the dry climate invaded from north. So that's the so it's hard to describe here without a graphic, but the, you can you can think you can you can picture this. That is the from in the middle of the Central Asia there is a big desert, and uh, just use that as an example. Over the last thirty years, this this northern boundary of this desert. Has been gradually approaching northward, and uh, at the, by the end of two thousand, by the end of two thousand twenty, the boundary has been um, expanding northward by about 100, 100 to one hundred twenty kilometers. So then, the, the north of that was a was it was a semi-arid or semi-arid semi-arid uh, climate zone, the Gobi Desert kind of climate. That part. Is shifted north, pushed northward, and I was taking some uh, geographic areas where the climate was wetter. So then you can see this, 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 this these consequences. There, the desert is expanding north, was so expanding northward and pushing the dry climate northward, and uh, as a consequence, some some previously wetter climate um, has been losing its. Um, Dominance in in areas, so the region is that's that's like a desertification. It's not because of not because of deforestation or not because of some some other things, but it's a result of this uh, climate change, climate variation. So then uh, we have figures showing clearly this northward expansion by that uh, uh, by that uh, uh, scale. In the last thirty years, so that is uh, pretty, pretty significant because for people living in those areas where climate has been sort of 
uh, switched from a wetter, wetter one to this more desert-like one, they have problems uh, they, they didn't see before, they didn't, uh, they have no solution before. They had no, they, they didn't face before, so they didn't have a solution. So they have to learn to learn quickly to find a way to solve those problems, particularly for agricultural communities. How do they, how do they manage this kind of dry condition? And how do they um, plan, where do they find water, resource, water resources to uh, sustain their life, uh, like production and other things? So those are, those are problems uh, people would be facing, um, may have already uh, faced, and they will be facing the same thing. Is the other point is that the, that kind of situation is not an anomaly. Like like people, we are still talking about a lot of, a lot of times we are still talking about anomalies. Oh, this is an anomaly. Like a, uh, California's wildfire, maybe is an anomalous anomalous dry condition, anomalous windy condition. It may not be anomaly anymore because the changing of climate that may be the norm of the climate in the in now and in the in the future years. So it's not an anomaly. We have to have some policies in place to face that reality. It's not just once every ten years. It's every year's problem, every year's problem. So that's that's uh, the same situation in Central Asia over there. They have to be be. They have to be. They have to be realistic that this this change is not going to be going away very soon. It's going to be staying there for who, who knows how long. So that's the major results and some 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 potential consequences uh, of this change. Um, we report in your in our result in, in our article. Yeah, thank you so much for this sharing this very important work with us. And um, I agree that um, yeah, we have to change our mindset uh, yeah. and find ways to cope with it. Um, that's like the sad truth now. Um, uh, I know that um, Killian had a lot of questions, so Killian, please go ahead with your questions. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'll, I'll I'll limit it to one or two points uh, that maybe the uh, professor would like to talk about. But um, I know, for example, that maybe one of the last great unknowns in climate science is the effect of clouds. And everything else we have some handle on, but clouds are still pretty much a mystery. And I read a, re a recent article, and I've put it into the chat, um, talking about they're working towards, I don't think they've gotten there yet, but they're working towards getting the resolution on clouds down to as low as the one to 200 meter resolution. And they're thinking that that will resolve this issue of clouds and help us understand whether that's going to be a positive feedback or a negative feedback. Because again, that's still unknown, but as far as I know, they're expecting it to be positive overall, but unknown. Um, so I, I'm assuming that would affect your research to some degree or, and, and assist your research um, in, uh, to some great degree, um, or maybe not. And then the other question I had is, as far as the mechanism, is any of this related to the northward movement of the jet stream? Thank you. Well, those are good questions. Um, the first question is about cloud. Cloud... Um, Cloud affects 
climate, that's for sure. Um, cloud effects are dependent on cloud elevation, the altitude. Low clouds is very effective in cooling the surface, and uh, doesn't really clouds. They, they don't do much for um, well for solar radiation, for shortwave radiation. But then high clouds, like cirrus clouds, they are going to they are very different. Cirrus clouds, cirrus clouds are very different. It can increase the surface solar radiation, shortwave radiation, um, instead of decrease. And also, it can heat the upper part, upper troposphere. So clouds, as you said, clouds effect, clouds effects are very sophisticated, com complex, and um, we don't have a very good handle on them. And also, the one of the reasons is, as you said, um, data, cloud data, cloud. We are still working on getting reliable cloud cover information, but that's a big task. Cloud, uh, the, 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 only, the only possible practical way is to use satellite observations to retrieve cloud, uh, but then cloud thickness, cloud water content, those are still mystery, and it's very, very difficult to retrieve from uh, satellite observations. So cloud effect on climate would be important for areas where cloud forms frequently. But in Central Asia, which is a desert, a semi-desert, semi semi-arid region, uh, even during the say, wet season, cloud, or the, wet, the wet season is very much during the winter. The major desert receives rain during their winter season. Summer is too dry to have any kind of pre precipitation. So during the winter season, uh, even clouds re present, clouds present, is difficult to to have any impact on say the the, the local climate. The climate is what cloud cloud is part of the climate. So the, the, if temperature is warmer and precipitation is 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 scarce, then the cloud would be fewer. We would have we would expect to have fewer clouds. So cloud effect will be weakened, will be weaker, or is weakened. So in our study, we did not uh, analyze any cloud effect or any clouds. Uh, the effect, the possible effect of cloud on the result outcome of our study, I would say is pretty minimal because of the, as I said, the climate is a dry uh, type of climate. Uh, cloud uh, formation, cloud life would be short and the impact would be very small. And also, the region is uh, is way in the uh, yeah. It's it's so that is my understanding for cloud effect in our in our studies here. The second uh, suggestion is uh, uh, the possible jet stream if north north northward movement of jet stream uh, may affect this. That could be. Um, that could be uh, a that could have some impact, but then the first question I would have well I would try to answer in in, in this uh, problem would be has jet stream pushed northward in recent decades? Is that is that is that true? The mean position, mean latitude of uh, say polar jet 
was nor has been has been shifted northward by how many degrees? Is that that has to be a well, I need to confirm that before I can do any. I, I before I can decide to do any analysis of how jet stream shift. But you are right that uh, <clears throat> large scale circulation is the primary causal mechanism for this change, because when the we analyze this uh, situation, analyze this this we did some analysis of like a very preliminary analysis of how uh, large-scale circulation may be playing a role in this uh, uh, northward expansion of desert climate in that region. The thing is that uh, you have the, in desert, over desert, you need to have more substance, the downward motion. So then <clears throat> during this summertime, as you said, if the jet stream moves further, was shifts further north, then you leave so south part, south side of the jet stream with more with higher pressure and down or more um, downward motion, so enhancing the uh, the uh, enhancing the desert climate, suppressing precipitation, um, giving uh, making the temperature warmer. So those are all going to contribute to desert climate. Um, we discussed this uh, in the paper. Uh, it's saying that uh, this we we discuss this based on using climate type uh, change. The change of those types of climate actually resulted in higher um, gradient of the temperature between north and south, the meridional temperature gradient uh, in that region. And that temperature gradient is going to enhance the thermal wind so then, then the thermal wind is what is just a variation of uh, wind direction over height. So that change is actually suggesting that uh, there is an increase of anticyclonic circulation over the region where the desert climate is expanding. So in that regard, you are, you are correct that uh, there is an indication that the jet stream may have been moving, may have been sort of pushed northward, leaving the south under the control of uh, anticyclonic uh, anticyclonic circulation, that can that may have sustained this climate in the in those areas. But Thank then, you so much. Oh, sorry. Yeah, but then that's just our our preliminary uh, or or sort of what is a yeah some preliminary very preliminary results, and we need to do more. Uh, to verify that uh, assumption or speculation to really pinpoint, not pinpoint, but really understand the cause, cause. But definitely the cause in general is the circulation and how the circulation changes. It could be carbon dioxide, carbon greenhouse gases, or that, that concentration change changes the, change the global distribution of energy and water and cause this shift of jet stream northward and then as this intensification of anticyclonic circulation at those latitudes and then causes change of climate. So, but then, as I said, we need more study to confirm that, to very validate that, uh, that speculation, I guess. Thank you, doctor. That was really excellent uh, response. Very detailed. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, does anyone else have questions? Please flash your microphones, raise your hands, or 
write uh, questions in the chat. Um, yeah. Well, if not, um, I'll ask questions. So, um, you know, for for your brother research, you say that um, you know you in the in the introduction, you said that you also discussed with farmers um, or producers um, how to use the data uh, to basically um, you know adapt uh, their production. Like, do you also have a work in progress that kind of helps producers in these regions and and how they can cope with that in the future is there a way to cope is it hopeless i i don't know uh are you yeah 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 i understand what your what your what yeah your question or your concern there yes that'd be it'll be great if uh, there isn't a program that can that can uh, engage uh researchers here with producers over there um, so that uh, science can really help people to deal with uh, real problems and to cope with the change and then uh, produce what well, produce but create policies that will work to benefit them but that is uh, that is a really far-fetched <laughs> um, um, is a is a dream that's not not is on is a uh, Difficult to be uh, realized, to be to be uh, to make to be true, and uh, even here, well, there is another problem. You, well, I think there is a reason for not for for that not to be happening easily, because because like even in the U.S. here, this is a, this is a, like a very technologically advanced society, and even in this situation, how many farmers are using weather information? 10%, that's probably a very high percentage. So very few farmers actually pay attention to weather information and even fewer actually use any information in their production planning. So that's, so we did, we have some, I have some projects funded by NOAA to study local farmers about their uh, decision behavior or decision making um, psychology in I mean regarding to weather information it's it war our findings I was working with uh, some psychologists and social uh, social scientists the, the findings are showing that uh, I mean farmers are are different well there is there are reasons for them to be that way to be sort of foreign to <clears throat> all the uh, alienize themselves to 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 this weather stuff or whatever NOAA NASA are providing because the first thing is that the those those uh, products predictions are untested or you can see all oh, our prediction has been increasing its uh, accuracy but uh, in when you, in which in which area. And in what regard you you, you measure your you, yeah in which form you measure your accuracy, and what's the persistence the reliability of that accuracy? Accuracy is for like seasonal forecast or for daily forecast for what is what what are your, what is exactly the accuracy for? So those are the concerns. There are many more uh, bothering farmers 
to actually, um, yeah, so that they, they don't have the trust. The trust is the key. When they don't have the trust, then they don't pay attention to those things. And that's one thing. The other thing is, well, the other thing is, other related problem is weather forecast is inaccurate. And so if, uh, if uh, you encourage people to use, you say, okay, do this, do that. Like a lot of these, a lot of those expert systems would, would tell people in the old days, do that, do this, and do this, do that, and then we'll, you can increase your profitability by how much, how many percent, whatever, uh, given them. But then, if the accuracy, if the accuracy fails, then you don't have the those expected anticipated benefits. The farmer would be would be facing the facing losses. Then at that time, nobody will come to bear that to share that loss to uh, you know to to come well compensate not compensate the farmers for the losses. So farmers would be the only one living there to I mean left there to take care of those mess and losses. So that's the, these are the major issues, practical issues that uh, uh, prevent farmers from using any kind of information. So great effort has been put in place to, to do this. Now USDA is playing a big part in doing this, but the, I think uh, the sum of the programs missed the major, missed the fundamental issue that is the trust. How do you build the farmer's trust? How do you build users' trust um, to your I mean, with your products? That's the key. So there is a big well. We, I mean, the 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 uh, idealized picture is perfect, but then how do you get there? Uh, how many hurdles, practical hurdles, you have to go over? How 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 can you trust? How can you build the trust among people? Uh, you want to, them to use your products. That's the key. So it's it's a it's a difficult thing. So back to your question, even in this country, we cannot we cannot uh, engage science with producers that easily. I mean, would be even it would be even more difficult for us to go there to a foreign place to tell foreign people that hey, you do you do this, we you can we can you can improve your production, you improve your life. I don't think they will listen. So that's that's the practical. Problems. There is a long way to go to pers to build the trust among users of weather information, climate information. Um, before the, before that happens, um, I think the the climate research. I, I don't know. This is hard. This is a very difficult to topic. Before we can build trust of users um, with the with the with the product, we try to we try to persuade them to use, there is little hope that, uh, well, there, I'm a little pessimistic, maybe through those projects I had uh, in the past years, uh, there would be very, very little hope that uh, people would use this, uh, using information um, in, their, in their actual decision-making. But of course, there are people, there are ways that we need more uh, government support, funding sources to, but then, I don't know, uh, there are people up there, they don't believe this happened, this would happen either, so they won't, so that's why there is very limited funding for doing this kind of research. Yeah, I guess, yeah. I guess the 
maybe the way would be to uh, fund farmers in the beginning when they follow these um, these programs or predictions um, and if they then get um, more successful then I guess other people would follow maybe yeah <laughs> yeah yes that's that's true that's true we need some long um, long range programs to work with farmers year over year so that we go through some success through some failures and to find ways to uh, in, improve predictions in the meanwhile increase farmers understanding of those predictions and their limitations and so they develop some some kind of uh, mitigation or plan b or mitigation strategies to deal with any possible um, you know this uh, failures from those predictions so they, they will still be benefiting from uh, from using the information I mean, using the information certainly scientifically will benefit people because um, they do what they do. What farmers are doing now is based on the past. They don't do. They don't look at the future. Last year, I did fine. I'm going to do the same this year. So that's that's fine. That's 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 reasonable because of their financial situation. You switch from one production to another, it will cost you extra money, more investment, and if the if you, you and you don't know what the weather will be this year, how different the weather this year will be from the previous year, then your investment to switch this operation is not going to be paid off. You're going to lose more money. So rather than doing that, you just follow what you did last year and assume that the weather is climate is going to be steady. That's reasonable assumption. Then you just go 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 that way. So that's why people say. It takes a major disaster, disaster event, disastrous event to cause to make farmers to change their behavior. That's the reason because they don't they don't change unless something really struck them very hard. They will think, oh no, we have to do something else. But uh, so forecast will help them to make this transition little by little, year after year, to get through uh, these different these variations of climate. And sort of improve their 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 production, but that as you as as you said will take a long range uh, investment, long range commitment to make to to allow researchers work with them farmer to uh, to make that happen to build the trust, build their capability, skills to use information, and uh, make a better life. I think I, yeah, our so, time, time, time is up. <laughs> yeah, I think, do you think education, maybe not here in the US, but in, you know, in other countries, education outreach to teach how predictions work, how to analyze data for the younger, maybe for the younger people would um, maybe make them trust more because they would maybe become participants in research, feel like they are participants in the research project and instead of the, you know, the, the test um, models. Yeah, that's true. That's definitely uh, true. We need to have, um, we need to invest, government need to invest to uh, involving or invest in young future generations to engage them in this new technology or new information uh, 
in all countries, poor country, rich country, poor countries still they have uh, they they can access to um, they still produce they still produce weather forecast and the climate information they still release those those things those products. So um, build some pro develop programs encourage young generations to use them to to study them to learn them and learn how to use them in their practice whatever practice maybe even even like an industrial operation anything that uh, will be benefit from uh, can be benefit from from knowing from from integrating weather information in their operations should be should be well those should be encouraged so that uh, uh, you know access you access and evaluate and use the information becomes a habit, becomes a natural uh, habit uh, for future generations. When, well, in that case, we have a hope to have uh, um, more use, a more effective use, correct use of weather information in the future. And then as predictions are certainly improving, even though slowly, but still uh, improving, so uh, over time, I hope uh, if that is the case, I mean here is it is the case. More more students, more young farmers are enrolled in universities, and uh, they are learning all different things: technology, and uh, management, and finances, and the weather information. So they, well, yeah, I hope that in not long future, they will return. But the problem is, are they going to return? To farm to farm business, that's another question. But they, when they return, they will bring a new, totally new paradigm to uh, farming business, and that would be great. Yeah, I don't know if the initiative is good. Maybe they'll return, but you know, if you go into data science anywhere else, yeah. probably less hard work and more money. Um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, but I think. I'm I'm saying maybe in other countries because the, I don't know in Portugal and you know and I see also you know where I'm from and other countries just being educated it's a value of itself and kind of prestigious by itself even if you then go back and do a simple job I'm not sure how it is in in these regions that we are you know the the paper is about. Um, so I kind of have hope that, yeah, just having this mindset of that being educated by itself is a value that it would kind of contribute to uh, people being more engaged in, in these, um, yeah, in these programs. But first, we would need government support to have these programs, right? So yeah, that would yeah. Be Yes, education is a, is a key to the door of future, future the bright future, is <laughs> a rich future. Yeah, you we need education uh, in any ways to improve. Uh, education is a way is a key to the door to improve people's life. I guess so is a key to improve people's life. That's for sure. Um, but this country, this country is is yeah has more resources to to do that. Um, I yeah in other countries like this country the, the region I studied in that uh, uh, project may not have that kind of resources to invest so it will take a longer time uh, for people to get 
sufficient uh, education or yeah it, it takes time that's why that's why this paper was was sort of ex, uh, has excited some peop, some uh, news media there to try to remind sort to try to remind the government about educate the importance of education and uh, also to uh, use information to re to revise or improve policies to um, sort of to educate and educate people to uh, deal with the changing situation and to uh, sustain their life so it's it's in those countries this lot of, yeah it's not easy it's not easy like even in china the this country is said to be rich i don't know um but the 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 geographic um setting there is is making things difficult uh, difficult in the sense that the land is divided into small pieces small patches and different family families or different groups of people operate on those patches so it's hard to make some decision uh, like okay you guys use it you guys should use this information to do this you you should use the information to do that so it's difficult to do that like here but that's in comparison to this country here it's like organized organized operation the lands are sort of uh, well uh, made in, in, in a way uh, so farmers are farmer farm farmers are farming over large areas in in um, with good um, equipment farming equipment so things will be much easier here. Even in this situation, it has been difficult to persuade farmers to use the information. They have, they have a lot of advanced technologies like GPS and all those sensors on their tractors. They still don't use much of modern information or weather information. So it's it's even harder. It will take it will take a longer time for those poor countries, or countries rich, but their 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 lands are are such that uh, it's hard to to use you know, they're just divided into patches in different places you go, you go to south korea some patches some 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 farmland not land some strips in between streets uh, are are plant are planted with uh, rice or some other crops it's hard to do <laughs> of course those are like a like a hobby farmers i guess but uh, it's hard to use uh, in those in those countries. It's hard to use weather information to to uh, to uh, to improve their farming because they're they're not farming in some large scale uh, farm farms. So, it, so yeah, the point is there are so many factors uh, we have to consider before we can make a program to you know effectively use. To allow to effectively carry out the the, the plan to in order to and to improve people's uh, uh, usage of uh, some useful information and to make uh, life, they make make more prop make more profit and improve their life. I guess I've talked too much. It's, it's over time. Oh, um, don't worry. Um, do you still have a little bit of time? I saw that. David joined Mark and then Killian, I think, has a question. Do you still have a few, a little bit more time or? 
Do you do you need to leave? This is getting too late. Yeah, Mark, you have a question. Yeah, um, I got so I have a theory that um, we the way we do agriculture um, on mass scales is the reason we are making these deserts bigger. We need to stop tilling the soil, changing the way that we are doing agriculture, because this is what is causing a lot of environmental damage. Um, if you practice regenerative farming, it actually brings back rainfall, cuts wind. Um, th there are um, several method, you know, instances that that show this. And why isn't this sweeping all over the world? So you are saying that uh, we should uh, change the way we farm instead of uh, um, large-scale farming that changes land cover over thousands of acres, we should do small-scale farms. Well, I agree with you that uh, farming changes land cover and changing of land cover will change the surface energy water balance. And that can change and cause change of climate, local climate, regional climate. We actually published a paper in 2018 in the Journal of Climate showing that, showing that uh, the 1930s dust bowl drought could um, have, well, could uh, be partially caused by the uh, cultivation during the migrate, westward migration of uh, far, farmers. So they, they say during the, in the, in the 20s, a lot of lands in the uh, central US were, uh, were cultivated from uh, native grass to corn, those things. Then the change of the land cover from native, native grass, which, ha which is a buffer actually for local uh, water uh, evaporation process to re preserve moisture in soil to, as you said, to, to change the, to keep the climate, local climate. Now when you, when you take them up and you play, plant the, uh, sh the short root uh, crops, then the, the surface water balance and energy balance would be changed completely. So that is, uh, we analyze that, uh, that could be a very important factor causing the change of the circulation in the, in the uh, central, Great, central and southern Great Plains and eventually lead to the, persist, lead to the extension, prolonged and enhanced drought in the 30th dust bowl drought. So that, that is an example showing that, uh, yes, human activities by changing land cover, that's one of them. Another would be releasing the greenhouse gases, or definitely change the uh, definitely cause changes of the uh, environment, climate, and uh, uh, other environmental aspects. So, but then, I mean, then that becomes a political or business political problem. Can, how how can we stop 
how can we um, change this? Uh, in this country, there is a tendency that uh, farmers farmers are selling their lands to corporate uh, farming business. So then the business is going to combine more lands into a huge farms, and then it'd be easy to operate to to uh, you know easy to operate to uh, product to to reduce cost in productions. So then. That is going to, as you said, going to change the land cover over a much larger scale. How is that going to affect the local climate? We don't know. And uh, that is, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, political uh, way. Well, I'm not, I'm not familiar with this, but then there is, there are, there are, there are a lot of, a uh, lot of, Factors or reasons or parties in this process, we have to. I mean, we'll, they will have to agree on certain things or understand certain something, and they agree on certain things in order to prevent from prevent some bad things from happening or whatever things from have from happening. So that is beyond what what we can talk about here. Um, I wanted to to respond now just because it it doubles back on what Mark said directly, um, and. Doctor, you, you said that it, there's this cost to transitioning all these other things, but the, the, what Mark was pointing out is when, if you transition from any kind of industrial type farming, uh, chemical based farming, etc., large scale farming uh, to regenerative farming, you don't incur those costs. You actually save money almost immediately, if not immediately, like in the first year, you'll save money because all those input costs are gone. For example, um, and that's a huge part of most farmers' costs is is just those chemicals, etc. Um, paying for water. If you do good regenerative farming, you're gonna re greatly reduce your water use, etc. So you very quickly are um, positive money-wise. And if there's any fall off in production, um, that is almost immediately balanced by increased nutrition of what is grown. And so you don't even lose anything food-wise. Um, and in fact, within a couple of years, you're having a you're in the you're in the black as far as producing as much food as before, and it's more nutritious by you know maybe thirty forty percent, um, something along those range or or more. So uh, the idea that that farmers have to go through this horrible crunch of and angst about losing everything in a, for three, four, five years is simply not true if they're guided well and make it and transition to regenerative farming. That's the trick: is if you're train, changing from one mechanistic chemical-based system to another mechanistic chemical-based system, one, you're wasting your time, and two, yeah, there would be a big cost involved. But um, and in terms of this is one of those areas where technology is great and wonderful and very useful, but it's actually not needed because the more that you build your soil, this is all about soil. It's not about anything else. Climate and all those things are important. But if you don't get the soil right, none of the rest matters. And if you do get the soil right, it ameliorates a huge percentage of all those other issues. So if you're building carbon into your soil, building microbial life in your soils, you're going to retain water. You're going to build the ability of the soil to grow food. You're going to be able to grow more food. Uh, well, in a desert region, you could massively increase how much you grow. And in an area that already has soil carbon in it, 
um, you wouldn't see as much of a change and it would be more like coming back to the level of the of the growth with the chemical ag. So um, just to ease everyone's mind, no, we can transition to regenerative farming and save money almost immediately and increase nutrition almost immediately, increase food supply almost immediately. So this really, as you said, it truly is more of a political issue than anything else. And it's it's we have to educate people to understand that sim- the simplicity of this is the key to it. And uh, it is simple, not easy always. Uh, if you're trying to do a 400 acre farm regeneratively, you can't do that regeneratively really um, in what I would call regenerative, but you can certainly do the three or four or five most common things associated with regenerative farming, which would have a, some, you know, a good portion of the of the positive effects, and allow that transition to happen. So even large scale farmers in one season can transition behaviorally, and within one to two three seasons will absolutely be producing better food, maybe as much food, and be making more money. So uh, Richard uh, Archuleta with the with the USDA has been a, a great example of helping mainstream farmers do this kind of thing, not just people like me that are permaculturalists and, you know, want to see the whole world become simpler. (laughs) I just wanted to throw that out there because the idea that it's this massive sacrifice is only if you're doing it poorly. Thank you. Yeah, that is intriguing. Um, I don't know details about that that type of farming, but my understanding is that uh, farmers have been or extension, I have extension appointment here. Our extension um, has been actually saying or has been working with farmers to do no-till, um, no-till and uh, rotation and some cover crops and some, all those things are actually aiming at minimum disturbance to soil. And uh, disturbance to soil carbon, disturb, disturbance to soil water. So, but then you cannot do that. You cannot repeat the same process over and over without, at a point, at one point, to to plow the soil, to change, to uh, do some do some cultivation or something, because the soil is getting packed. And uh, um, water-wise, you have to. Every crop will use uh, water. So at places like here. If you want to grow corn, if you grow corn in the middle or central or western part of the state, you don't have enough water to uh, to uh, to maturity. So you have to add water. You have to add water, and when you add water, then that's 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 cost. And how do you do that? And then um, you can you this that process is going to make make the soil packed. And at one point, at some point in the future, you will have to. Um, Act on or do something to change that uh, uh, situation and uh, restart from from beginning. So there are some, yeah, it's it's an ideal uh, ideal model for uh, farming with the maximum uh, disturbance to soil, maximum uh, uh, reduction to see chemicals and uh, energy use. That's ideal. That's great. But then, well, so, I don't know. As I said, I don't know that detail. But I, my understanding, from my experience with uh, with extension, is uh, at one at some point that system will have to be revived. And yeah. that, 
No, yeah. Doctor, I'm sorry. That's just incorrect. If if that's what is happening, then like I said, they're doing it poorly, because that if you're doing regenerative farming well, you will only be adding more and more carbon to the soil, which will only make it more and more porous, et cetera, et cetera. You're using plant roots to get down through two meters of the soil, not just the top 12 inches, for example. So if that's happening, it's because people are taking these these two or three, as I said, taking these two or three or four big ideas that are easy to do and calling it regenerative farming. That's not regenerative farming. That's like the baby steps, but the most obvious and simplest changes to make with regenerative farming. But it, it's a system approach. That's not systemic. It's it's borrowing a couple techniques. And I guarantee you in any case where you would show me where the soil is getting compacted with regenerative approaches, it's because there's something missing what they're doing. They're, they're doing something that is disrupting the regenerative process. Uh, that that's It just simply doesn't work that way. You don't compact soil by using regenerative systems. It simply doesn't happen. Can I? I'm sorry. That's good to know. Yeah. We I, yeah, if you have something to uh, for us to use, that'd be great. If you can send me something, then I can talk to our extensions and see whether what we missed, and then uh, yeah, maybe we can share we can share that with with farmers with some programs, local programs, see how 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 uh, this new model may work or how to improve this this uh, this conservation practice to make more money from use less uh, resources. That'd be great. That's, that's what, that'd be great that ideal model of the situation. If that works, that'd be wonderful. Well, I think Mark is, is a farmer and is in the US, so he might be the person for you to talk to, because I'm in Korea and I'm, I don't have a farm right now, but okay. I think Mark okay. does. I'm in Brazil, I'm in Brazil. Oops, sorry, sorry. <laughs> okay. Yes, we, we can make some kind of contact if you like. Um, and there are people all over that understand these things um yeah that'd be that great. can help that'd be great. yeah you can if you can send me some uh, send me some uh, some some readings or some uh, website information and i could I'd be happy to uh read them and see what uh, what they are doing and uh, how we may learn from those um yeah it'd be great thank you i if, if i might be able to ask a question to take us back to a point you brought up just a few moments before the really, really great insights that Killian and, and the permaculture stuff that he he teaches us here. I mean, I thanks Killian <laughs> for bringing that up. I just I wanted to ask, kind of pivot back to something with regards to Doctor. You mentioned um, I guess that there's a uh, an increase in the corporate acquisition of I guess rural farms. Yeah. and of farmers and so here being a I, i'm here in a, in the u.s but i spent decades in california and i grew up in las vegas so i get the you know i've been telling my friends about lake mead for actually over a decade that that's just kind of a that's a real estate bubble that's going to burst by, by nature at some point and mm -hmm. then the drought in california is what got me to really pack up and move up to the seattle area where i'm at and then We've had, um, as you may have heard, the uh, the heat dome spike and its effect on crops. And and I just wanted to kind of get back to this this idea. The word I, I'm kind of using more is just the word resilience. 
the financial resilience, the, the food resilience, the systems we need are going to need to be resilient. And when you bring up corporate farming, that was kind of the essence of my question is, you know, to keep the populace from revolting, <laughs> you know, quite frankly, not just in China, but anywhere, right? They're they, I think yeah. they're, what's po getting popularized now is worth, we're three, what is it, three meals from a, uh, from from kind of anarchy anywhere around the world because of the just how how just the food systems and the food distribution and production systems around the world are are just kind of that's kind of just that's the state of them I guess and so I just want to kind of ask again or kind of take it back to the um, to to in the regions you've studied what um, what are some insights you can share with regards to to uh, polit the political and the corporate power you know. Because that's kind of, you know, at some point, it, the power might, it's going to have to be used to help maintain a uh, steady supply of food, you know? So any kind of thoughts around that um, would it would be great if you don't mind sharing or, or whatever. But thank you so much for coming into Clubhouse and, and sharing um, your study and things like that. It's really, it's really appreciated by everybody. Yeah, thank you. Um, if I could see anything about... Uh is resilience or to sustain or make the resilience of the food production system in any place uh, that would be well what what is resilience well in my mind resilience is the uh, in this in this real world is is a is like a, like a food production water resources all the all the resilience of all those resources systems is is what is climate resilience? Is how how this system has ha, these systems have to be managed in the changing or in court in 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 sync with the changing climate, so that you can constantly you can produce you can continuously produce in any kind of climate coming to you. That's a resilience. Is otherwise what we're talking about resilience is just a just a word doesn't really have any practical meaning. The meaning here for this for these production systems is about dealing with the climate. Climate is changing, so we are we have policies. We have plans to deal with that change, to take advantage of that change, so that we can produce, we can keep producing, and keep the water resources in place sufficient enough for future generations. That's the resilience. And how how do we do that? How can we do that? That will be, as I said, will require. First, understanding what the climate is or what the environment condition will be, um, like the Lake Mead situation, we should have probably uh, known or expected this situation 10 years ago. So now we would be, well, we would have probably, hopefully, we would have been planned or would have some resources or would have ways to, or the best thing, best situation scenario would be, we won't make the situation, we won't be in this situation, we won't allow this to happen. So, but then we, we didn't plan this. So then the thing is that, as I said, the first would be knowing what is ahead of us. That's a prediction of research, education. And the next thing would be policy, that's politics. How the government, how the uh, management bodies would, would decide to respond, would, 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 would decide what is important in their, in, on, on, on their agenda so that they would, React, re they are not react, but proactive. I would say to make policies or change policies, uh, so that uh, they can 
they can put the knowledge in the system and prepare the system to be ready to take on any kind of future conditions and sustain production, sustain resources. But in, see, in the in the region where we 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 did our study, we didn't go there. We just used the data there. Uh, when I was talking to this TV reporter like yesterday, and she, uh, she was saying, "Well, yes, government is paying attention to this problem, but then what kind of attention? What kind of uh, resources government is willing to put to give uh, to researchers or research institutions, whatever?" Um, government arms to 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 prepare people for you know for prepare to people for future uh, changes or conditions conditions so that's that's a big 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 problem even in this country we have been now just getting into this uh, resilience uh, problem you heard this a uh, lot of centers are building sort of are, are built uh, to do this with ecosystem resilience or some food production resilience I mean, those are, I'm, I'm not sure what, what they are doing, but my understanding is that they are just, they, they miss the point. What is the resilience? They're trying to do kind of, some kind of a genetic stuff or some kind of, yes, those are important, but then what is the first order business is, what is the future look like? And then in, in different kind of scenarios, we don't know exactly, but we have scenarios based on our understanding of the system. Then in different scenarios, what we would respond, what would be the response will, will help us to have this resilience in food production, in resources availability, all those things. So the government now, the government is definitely paying attention to this. That's a good thing. But then um, how do we do that? That's, 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 a, that's, a, that's a difficult, difficult question to answer because um, while we all view this problem differently from different perspectives and we have our own sort of uh, um, preference to solve this problem or we have, we have our own views or our own interpretation of this problem so that's where this this the, the, uh, the, the this uh, problem comes because we are taking the problem in different directions and uh, it's not necessarily a good thing um, if government doesn't 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 give you a direction to go, that's a good thing. Um, so I'm not I'm I'm not sure. This is the open end question. We, we, not open end question. This is just a question that just the pop just the just the rising in the horizon. Uh, we are dealing with this, and how to deal with this? Uh, what what government plays role? What role government plays? What role research community or extension community or the farming the actual society will play? Those are all open questions, not known at this point. You you said you said you 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 put this in a very good uh, phrase, and I think uh, uh, I don't think that I, I I don't know whether this uh, acquisition of individual farmers by core businesses would be a good thing for this uh, for 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 preparing this to preparing us preparing the society to deal with that situation to face that situation. Some people say that's a good thing because in corporate business. They have, uh, they have, uh, they are more sort of educated. I don't know whether they are educated, but they are, they have uh, this uh, central decision making uh, unit or body unit, so they can make a decision for thousands of thousands of acres of land rather than this. You have the individual farmers, 
each takes about a uh, few thousand acres. You have persuaded individual farmers to do certain things uh, in order to to reach some goal. And so, but then some others are saying, no, that's that, that acquisition is a bad bad deal. I mean, these are all uh, different opinions at this point. It's hard to see what is right, what is wrong, what is best for what scenario because we don't know the scenario what we don't know what the, what the what what are the possible scenarios would likely to to be emerging in the future so that's 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 a difficult question you know so yeah no i really it's, uh, thank you so much I, I just wanted to just to answer that just by looking at the last few decades of 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 how how we have faltered substantially and it has to do with on the on the uh the form of capitalism i'll, I'll do it in our context in, in the u.s context our form of capitalism decades ago was more of a multi-stakeholder form um and with within the need to have resilience is a multivariate optimization problem is, is how I'd, i would frame that so but what's happened in and what's really just created so many problems here is just the uh, just a unit unilateral optimization on short term profits, you know, so that's been that's what's created so many problems over here. Yeah, so so yes. it'll be great to see how how the the uh, these massive extremes, right, the, the, the droughts, the heat spikes, the, fl the flood spikes. As they start to really create some interruptions and harvest failures, um, and with respect, Killian, even even if you're farming with permaculture, I mean that we're we're heading into some really rough waters out here. So, but that's kind of the, the point with regards to resilience, which would be a multivariate optimization, and you know just taking it from from those of us who've really been beaten up by the corporate far the rise of corporate farming. It's uh, just you know to the degree that the uh, those who rise to power can can just keep in mind and try to optimize the multivariate problem that it is. That's how I just kind of catch it without getting into too many details. Yeah, I, I would just like to say very quickly that um, that when you say to a permaculturalist that you know, with with all due respect, permaculture, blah blah blah, you've just told me you don't really fully understand permaculture because it is exactly a design process. I don't know where people don't. I, I don't know why people don't get that. It is a full system design process. So we don't leave anything out. We don't forget anything. We don't set anything aside. We look at the entire system, tabula rasa, anytime we start doing anything. So it, it is fully aware system. It is a fully prepared system for dealing with the systemics. And that's why it's powerful, because that's exactly what we do, is what you two are saying. Look at the whole system deal with the whole system, designed to the whole system. That's exactly what we do. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for correcting me, Killian. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, that's a good point. Well, I wanted to say, uh, Doctor, I just wanted to reinforce something you just said because you rarely hear it. Um, back in 2009, 2010, I was in Detroit, Michigan, and they were in, beginning their process of doing like a, a new 10 year plan or something like that. I forget, I forget how many years it was, 10 or 20, I forget. Um, and all the activists in town were trying to have an impact on this and we we're all running around doing this, that, and the other. And, uh, one of the things that, that became clear to me is, is a 10 to 20 year 
plan for any city or any size uh, political entity at this day point, and that, this was ten, you know, this is twelve years ago, um, with the rapidity of that with climate change, how fast it's happening, how rapidly ecosystem is being destroyed. It just seemed obvious to me that we need to do what is called backcasting, which is what you just described. You didn't call it that, but that's exactly what you're talking about, is looking forward to the future and trying to guess as best you can, make your educated guess, and that's all it is, of course, um, about what it's going to be like and pick a number, you know, in 2100, 2150, what, whatever number works for for your process and then backcast from there and that tells you where you need to go and that makes it a lot easier to start from where you are to work through the transition to getting to that point but i absolutely agree with you that it's vital to what we're doing absolutely vital yeah that's that's something we want to find see some kind of guideline for us to 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 uh to plan uh otherwise we don't where where what is uh, what is what we what are we planning for? That's that's just a, just an aimless uh, process. It's just not going to be useful, or beneficial. So we have at least some. Um, that's why there is there is this uh, what is a uh, garment some climate panel thing. What is uh, what is this? Uh, I forgot this uh, phrase or the acronym for that thing. It just have it has a. Uh, um, research units from major countries all over the world to run their model, climate models for the next 100 years. Oh, the models, IPC, the yeah, IPCC? IPCC, I'm saying, thank you for reminding me. Just, that phrase just uh, didn't come to my, to my mind for some reason. Yeah, so that is uh, why that was important many years ago, but now it's still, I think people still pay attention to that. It's because it, it's, it gave us the best of scientific, scientific, uh, educated guess of what the future would would be, would be like, and so that gave us some guidance, at least some kind of, uh, yeah, guidance, some direction where we, we 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 may want to plan for. So that that's the reason for that for that uh, organization being there all all these years, um, and also supported by governments all over the uh, world. So that is, uh, but again, um, the forecasts are very, are are never never being accurate, uh, but it's still it's it's a direction. It's a direction where this is going to be, in the best of our our current uh, understanding, and then then uh, so that should have some value for us to to use uh, in preparation or preparedness for uh, our future. So. Yeah, so that's uh, that's that's the reason why government has invested here, or all ma major 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 countries in the world, um, governments are invested heavily on, I mean, in this in this kind of business, in forecasting, improving models to forecast future, uh, because that that because that's what we we are going to rely on, to 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 make policies, to make some uh, decisions. Uh, in short term to prepare ourselves and ready to deal with future conditions. Well, I, I really appreciate your, your, your patience with me and your, your participation in this discussion. I think it's very beneficial, beneficial to me as well to know your, 
I mean, from discussions with you, and it's something I didn't know you mentioned to me, and it's very good. It's very great, uh, great experience. Oh, thank you so much, Steve. And um, yes, thank you for spending so much time with us, and yeah, um, answering all of our questions and listening to our ideas. And uh, it has been a great discussion. Thank you so much. And yeah, maybe you. back in the future again with maybe some some update research or some some other things you would like to share with us maybe in the future would be wonderful yes, yes i'll be i'll be uh, visiting your clubhouse more often this year try to find some time to hear your uh, the other other uh, participants talk and talks and see i will uh, i'm interested in learning new things oh wonderful especially the yeah the subjects the others uh, brought up uh, during the discussion those are interesting to me new someone new to me too um yeah 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 we cover a lot of different science topics um you know for everything from quantum physics to behavior and <laughs> your okay climate and engineering so yeah um you're already a wonderful moderator because that leads us to me telling <laughs> everyone Great. is coming next if you're okay with that um tomorrow we have a room with dr kagan he looks at gene mutations across species and oh. a shining light on aging how aging uh, works and how different um, species age and we can learn hopefully a lot from that um yeah that is tomorrow and then next week we have another exciting week where we discuss evolution of corporation molecular robots um, and how um, uh, they work um, cooperatively in swarms and how to get that work then dr spontag will talk about self-disinfecting and ionic polymers um, um his research and another two climate related rooms uh, how helium levels are rising as a byproduct of fossil fuel and or what what the, we don't know yet what it means but um hopefully dr birner can tell you a lot more about it or tell us all a lot more about it and we'll have dr england coming talking about atlantic ocean currents and how they are slowing down um, so yeah, it will be another exciting week. And thank you so much, Steve, for coming. We really appreciate it. The room it was a really great and interesting discussion. And uh, enjoy the rest of your week. And um, yeah, thank you everyone for coming. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Katerina, for running such a great room. And, and Doctor, for you, your explanations are really, really excellent. Very, very detailed and clear. That's really beautiful. And, and for being open-minded. Um, I run into PhDs all the time who are a little less so, and it's it's frustrating. Um, and I put I the links that I put in the chat. I also sent to you directly. I don't know if you know how to access those yet. Um, and I wanted to invite you if you to explore some of the uh, uh, systemics of all this. Um, I'm having a conversation tomorrow with Steve Keen and a Q and A, who is a, a professor of economics um, and has.
written books on de like debunking economics, and he's created a model for what is called a steady state economy, which you might be interested in. Um, yeah. Anyway, I'll be talking to him tomorrow. So if you have time or the inclination, you're well, more than welcome to come and be great All to right. have you. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank and, you. And thank similarly, you. Dr. Hu, um, um, I'm going to be at some point holding uh, rooms on um, uh, soil restoration and the soil microbiome and biofertilizers uh, and also uh, regenerative eco villages, including in the desert. So I think this is like right up your alley. So if yeah. If um, you look at my profile, you can find a club called uh, uh, Critical Biomass, uh, which is about those topics. Um, and I would invite you to join so that you'll get notifications about those. That's great. Uh, let me uh, ask you one thing, uh, because I don't use my phone often. Could you please uh, send me an email, uh, e email and let me know your uh, see your programs and the, uh, and, and also upcoming events. Uh, I will try to participate as much as I can. My email address is uh, qihu at unl.edu. qihu <laughs> at unl, great. .edu, yes, yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah, if you forget the email, you can always also reach out to me and I can connect you. So be happy to do so. Great. Wonderful. I'm so happy. New collaborations, <laughs> new connections. That's wonderful. I hope you enjoyed it, Steve. And thank you so much. Okay. We'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Katarina. Bye, everyone.